This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We're in a series entitled You Asked For It during the month of May. You all submitted questions on whatever you could think of. And uh, we're taking the most frequently asked, and we are preaching on those for several weeks here in uh, uh, June and July. Predictably, we had numerous questions about Christian living in an LGBT world. This issue has catapulted over the course of the past few years. And I would say right out of the gate that for the most part, the Christian community has not done a good job of handling this. We have waffled between two opposite errors, accommodation on the one end and condemnation on the other. Now, it's impossible for me to be uh, thorough and comprehensive in one message on this topic, so my goals are modest. Uh, I'm going to focus more today on transgenderism, and we'll leave same-sex sexual intimacy for another time. Uh, I want to recommend to you and acknowledge a book that uh, has been helpful in my own thinking on this, and I would wholeheartedly suggest you buy this and read it thoughtfully. The book is called God and the Transgender Debate, What Does the Bible Actually Say About Gender Identity by Andrew Walker. Very, very helpful resource um, for thinking through this, this issue. This morning, we're going to ask and answer four questions. What do the terms mean? How did we get here? Where does God fit into all this? And how ought the church and Christians respond? What do the terms mean? How did we get here? Where does God fit in all this? And how ought the church and Christians respond? First, what do the terms mean? You have to know this in order to walk through the culture that we live in today. Uh, We have to know these terms. I'm going to focus on four terms. Sex, gender, gender identity, and gender dysphoria. Uh, You have to know these in order to be able to, to think through this. Uh, The term sex today, at least as it relates to this topic, refers to a biological makeup, to composition. Men have XY chromosomes, women have XX chromosomes, this is their sex. So as far as this conversation goes, that's what this means. Now it used to be that the term sex and gender were different terms for the same thing. But in our cultural context, that's no longer the case. Those two have been detached from each other. They're unattached such that your sex may be female, that is, someone may have XX chromosomes, but they may regard their gender as male, for example. So gender identity is a person's self-perception about whether, they are, whether their gender is male or female, masculine or, or feminine. So gender identity is self-perception unattached to biological makeup or chromosomes. Some people feel that their gender doesn't align with their biological sex. That is, for example, they may have XY chromosomes, but they feel that they are female. So when someone feels um, distress or inner anguish or discomfort 
from sensing a conflict between their gender identity and their biological sex, that person is experiencing gender dysphoria. People with gender dysphoria experience the feeling that their body is lying to them. Now, I would encourage uh, all the Christians in the room to adopt a motto. We'll talk about this as we move on. For engaging with the transgender community. Our motto needs to be compassion. We have a tendency in the Christian community to reduce everything to a debate over talking points. We work with logic, and we use logic to defeat logic on the other side of the issue. This is not a debate. It's not about winning an argument. Those in the transgender community have experienced quite a bit of distress and inner anguish, and discomfort over the conflict they feel between their biological makeup and their perceived gender. Beating them up through a debate in the end is not helpful toward what the final cause ought to be for us as believers. Now you might be thinking, well how can it be possible for someone to feel distress over the conflict between their biological makeup and their perceived gender? How can it be possible to to experience that? Well, Romans 8 reminds us that creation has been subjected to frustration and is in bondage to decay. Those are the words that are used to describe creation as a result of sin. It's subjected to frustration and it's in bondage to decay. There is not one sphere of human existence where sin's tentacles have not unleashed their fury So if you're shocked that it's possible for someone to feel distress or a conflict between their biological makeup and their perceived gender, I would say to you that you're not not understanding the full extent of sin's corrupting power. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we move on. You need to know what the terms mean. Second question, how did we get here? How did we get to a place... Not experientially, but how did we get to a place where on the topic, the, thing, the, the, the issue of gender identity can be campaigned and fought for and defended with such uh, strident confidence? How do we get to that place? In Walker's book, he identifies five streams that feed or flow into the, the transgender conversation. Five tributaries that flow into this conversation. Relativism, post-Christendom, radical individualism, sexual revolution, and Gnosticism. The five tributaries that flow into this conversation. I'll briefly work through each of those five. Relativism is the air we breathe today. It's the belief that meaning and truth are relative. That is, what is right for one person may be wrong for another. Relativism denies that there's one right way to understand the world. So you've got Islam, you've got Christianity, you've got Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, countless others, and none of them are true at all times and in all places. Okay, one particular religion is just one way a person may choose to live their life. 
But one particular religion is not authoritative for everyone. This is relativism, one of the streams that feeds into the transgender conversation. The second stream is post-Christendom. Now, by all accounts, Christianity's cultural influence is dying. This means the the moral compass that, that once governed major sectors of Western society is no longer operational. Fewer people are attending church. Even those who attend church are attending more infrequently. There are growing biblical illiteracy rates. All of that leads to something. It leads to more and more unfamiliarity with the biblical narrative and more and more unfamiliarity with the biblical values that many in our culture once took for granted. Third stream is radical individualism. This is a natural outflow of relativism. Radical individualism says everyone gets to write their own script. What an individual wants or what an individual wills is the highest good, and it is wrong to tell someone their choices or beliefs are wrong or immoral. So the greatest sin, in a sense, is, quote-unquote, judging someone else. Fourth is a sexual revolution. From the 1960s, gave rise to the creed, if it feels good, do it. Arguably, there's no more influential stream feeding our current climate. The sexual revolution tells us that our bodies are ours to do with as we please, and we have the right to use them to make us feel good and happy, whatever that may be. Sexual freedom is the greatest contributor to personal fulfillment. And the fifth stream is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is actually an ancient worldview. The New Testament writers contended with this. It's made a reemergence in the 21st century. Gnosticism teaches that the physical world is bad and broken, and what really matters is for a person to seek escape from the physical world. So self-awareness, self-awareness is different and more important than the physical body. Self-awareness is different and more important than the physical body. So it teaches us that our true self is different or can be different than our physical bodies. That's clearly seen today in the belief that our gender can be different than our biological makeup. It's Gnosticism. Now, if you were to put all five of these streams, five tributaries into a blender and hit the puree button, okay, there are two governing quote-unquote truths that our culture adheres to resolutely. Two quote-unquote, truths that our culture adheres to resolutely. The first is this. I should not be held accountable to some external standard. That's the first one. I should not be held accountable to some external standard. And the second is, I have a right to fulfill my desires. I should not be held accountable to some external standard, and I have a right to fulfill my desires. Now, this helps us understand not just the LGBT world, but it helps us make sense of our culture in general, and it helps us to understand what makes Christian growth so challenging, because every one of us drink this Kool-Aid every day. Every one of us is fed this constantly. In pastoral ministry, hands down, this has been the most challenging thing to work through with Christians. I should not be held accountable to some external standard. I have a right to fulfill my desires. If I want this, I have a right to get it, whatever the cost. 
This is what makes Christian discipleship so challenging. Because it's the air we breathe, it's the Kool-Aid we drink. Okay? Third question, and I want to spend more time on these last two. Where does God fit into all of this? In 2016, there was a YouTube video that went viral. It's of a young Caucasian man in his 30s interviewing college students at an American university. And uh, the, the video really demonstrates the slippery slope of these two governing truths. Okay. I should not be held accountable to some external standard and I have a right to fulfill my desires. It shows the slippery slope of, of holding on to those two things resolutely. So this, this young Caucasian man in his 30s, he's interviewing college students, and he first asks a variety of students how they would respond to him telling them he's a woman. And here's a smattering of some of the responses. One student said, good for you. Another student said, I'd be like, what? Really? Another student said, I don't have a problem with that. Next, he asked them how they would respond, the same students would respond, to him claiming to be Chinese. First student said, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Yeah, be who you are. Another student said, I would maybe think that you had some Chinese ancestor. Another student said, um... I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I assume you're a white man. The next set of questions the interviewer asked um, is he asked these students whether they would be happy with him claiming to be seven years old and seeking to enroll in a first grade class. This time there was more hesitation. First student said, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... It wouldn't really bother me that much that I would go out of my way and tell you, no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, he wants to be seven years old. Another student said, well, if you feel seven at heart, then so be it. Good for you. Another student said, if first grade is where you feel mentally you should be. <laughs> Very clever. I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. Another person said, I would say, so long as you're not hindering society, not causing harm to other people, I feel like joining a first grade class should be an okay thing. Now, lastly, the interviewer asked the same students what they would say if he told them he was six feet, five inches tall, about 10 inches taller than he is. First student, no answer. Second student said, now that I would question. Interviewer asked, why? Student said, because you're not. I don't think you're six foot five inches tall. Third student said, well, if you truly believe you're six foot five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. Interviewer came back and said, so you'd be willing to tell me that I'm wrong? Student said, no, I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. Another student said, I feel like that's not my place as another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. A fifth student said, no, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, 
that's wrong to believe in it because, again, it doesn't really bother me that you want to think about what you want to think about your height. The interviewer responded to that student and said, so I can be a Chinese woman? Um, sure. But can I be six foot five and a Chinese woman? The student said, yeah, that's fine. And then the last student said, if you thoroughly debated me, debated me or explained why you felt you were six foot five, I feel like I would be very open to saying you are six foot five or Chinese or a woman. Walker, commenting on this, says this, in the transgender debate, the argument is that we must accept the claim that a man who identifies as a woman is really a woman. But work that backwards on a different example. Would it be kind to tell someone suffering from anorexia that their self-perception of being overweight is correct simply because that is how they perceive themselves? Or would it be kind to tell someone who feels as though their life is not worth living that they should act on what their heart and head are saying? Absolutely not. That would be cruel, not kind. The interview is exemplifying a slippery slope that these two cultural truths create. It's difficult to find where a line would ever be drawn. It ends with a five foot seven man being able to claim he's six foot five or a Chinese woman or someone who can roll along seven year olds in a first grade class. As a brief aside, I hope you see what happens to human life when God is silenced. When God isn't allowed to speak, or to have authority over us. There are numerous places in the Bible where God's word is portrayed as light. The imagery conveys that where God's word is absent, there's darkness. When my wife and I were on our honeymoon, we um, toured a some set of caves in Kentucky, I think it was. And at one point in the tour, the the tour guide took us to a place in the cave where there was absolute darkness. It's the first time I remember experiencing anything like this. We don't ever experience that. There's always some shred of light in our day-to-day rhythms. But he took us down. We were very, very deep underneath the earth's surface. Took us to a place where there was absolute darkness. He turned off his light. And what I was so struck by is how quickly that becomes disorienting. You lose track of everything, of where you are, of which way's left, of which way's right, of which way's up and down. It, 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 it's, you start fumbling about. It doesn't take long before it just starts falling apart into chaos. We need the light of God's word to prevent everything from falling into chaos. We need the light of God's word in order to function. 
So let's try a different path. Let's insert the God of the Bible into the picture. Genesis begins by saying that God created the heavens and the earth. This world has a creator. And what has been made belongs to its maker. What has been made belongs to its maker. The creator has the authority. If you go out there and you buy some clay and you bring it home and you put it on your spinning wheel in your garage and you fashion a vase out of it, you have the right to tell that vase what to do. You are its creator. If we have a creator, he has the right to tell us what to do. Let me give you another word picture. Imagine yourself on a tour of an airplane manufacturing plant. You're there to see a new cutting-edge model. And as you begin your tour, you talk with engineers about the overall design. They talk about the plane's speed, its power, seating capacity. Next, you head out onto the floor, the manufacturing floor of the plant, where hundreds of workers each have a unique task. You stroll past each station. Workers are assembling the engine. There's a station for wiring all the cockpit instrumentation. Further down the factory floor, you see workers putting upholstery on seats that will go inside the plane. Each is working from a plan, the blueprint for the plane. Then at the very end of this enormous facility, you see it, the plane itself. It is still in almost skeletal form, but a design is taking shape that will make this insanely heavy object fly at amazing speeds. And if any of these workers fail to meet expectations, something could go wrong with the plane. A mistake in constructing the engine or a failure to tighten the proper components properly will lead to catastrophe. Every part of the plane's design is intentional. Nothing here happens by accident or guesswork. Each part of the plane is relying on other parts of the plane to do their job so it can do its job. The parts are interlinked, and they're dependent on each other. So when we look at the Bible, we see a similar story take shape as we read how God created the world. There was a designer. He had a plan for how he was going to make the world. There was a blueprint that God had in mind. And once he had built his creation, he stood back, he nodded approvingly, and he said, this is exceedingly good. We are part of this creation. We are creatures with a creator. And the best way to live is according to the blueprint that God designed, by playing the part that God designed humanity to perform. As creatures, we can't rewrite the blueprint of our design on our own or at our will. A plane's engine cannot decide to be a wheel because the wheel is defined with a different purpose in mind. We have neither the authority nor do we have the ability to rewrite or reconfigure how God made his world. It's his creation. We're just living in it. And since our bodies are part of this world made by him, his authority extends to us. This is his creation, and we are his creation. So this is why, ultimately, God has authority in the transgender conversation. His voice deserves to be heard And his opinion needs to carry ultimate weight. See, this is a question, ultimately this is a question of whether the creator 
has the right to speak about his creation. And it's a question of whether a creator has more knowledge of his creation than another small part of his creation. So this is a debate, this is a wrestling match for people on competing authorities. Ourselves, God, creatures, creator. That's what each of us has to decide. And it is a safer bet to cast your lot with the story of the creator who speaks authoritatively about how he made creation and why he made creation. Now, even though this creator possesses the right to tell us what to do, doesn't mean he's angry He's a tyrant, ruling from his lofty throne. The Bible also tells us that he loves us. So much so that he sent his son to die for us. So that those who believe in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. That's not a cranky God. That's not a tyrant. That's a loving God. He's a crucified creator who has proven he can be trusted with giving us what is best for us. Fourth and final question, how ought the church and Christians respond? Let me offer four thoughts on this. Number one, we need to empathize or sympathize with bodily awkwardness. Genesis 2, verse 25, before Adam and Eve sinned, we read this verse, Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. One verse that has garnered so many chuckles over the centuries is just replete with depth. Think about this for a minute. Adam and Eve were at complete peace and rest over how they had been made. There wasn't a shred of insecurity. There was no detachment between how they perceived themselves and how God had made them. None. Now, are you at ease with how you have been made? I'm not. Before we rebelled against God's blueprint, no one felt embarrassed or awkward about how they had been made. That's what the verse is saying. How God created male and female was exactly the way it was supposed to be. And Adam and Eve experienced that. But after they rejected God's blueprint, they began to feel ashamed of their bodies. Chapter 3, verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The very first consequence of rejecting God's blueprint was feeling ashamed and awkward about our bodies. Ashamed and awkward over how we have been made. Now we now live in a world that's simultaneously beautiful because of its creator, but broken because of our sin. 
We inhabit a world that's in a perpetual state of tug of war. It's beautiful because God made it that way, and it's profoundly broken because of sin. And those who struggle with gender dysphoria feel this tension more acutely than most. So on some level, we need to learn to empathize with them. Second, Christians need to hold our ground on the unreliability of human desire. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Remember that one of the truths that our society holds to is that I have a right to satisfy my desires. But God's word is opposed to that. Our hearts are deceitful. They create unholy desires within us. If our hearts are, were compasses, they're Jack Sparrow's compass. They don't tell us the truth. They just tell us what we want. Walker, again writing, says, The nature of deception is to convince us that our hearts will not be satisfied unless we indulge what our hearts desire. Not every impulse we experience should be indulged. We should be suspicious about listening to our hearts. Our hearts' desires can be at war with what is actually good for our hearts. The real question is which desires should be fed and which should be starved. Every Christian knows this struggle. Think about the last time your heart wanted something that wasn't good for it. For most of us, that was probably this morning. We all have desires for things illicit. We all have desires that if acted upon would actually cause harm to ourselves and others. The question is, who gets to tell us what those are? Third, love your transgender neighbor. Perhaps the most scandalous story Jesus ever told is known by most of us as the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man was on a journey. He was ambushed by some thugs. Robbed. They robbed him. They beat him. They left him for dead. Two Jewish men proceed to pass by their fellow countrymen, not offering him any help. A Samaritan, however, ends up being the hero of the story. He stops. He tends to the gravely injured man. He transports him. He gives him medical care and shelter, pays for the bill. It's a lovely story. But we underestimate the scandalousness of it. The scandals found in the Jew-Samaritan relationship in the first century. Best modern-day examples vividly portrayed in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Samaritans and Jews of Jesus' day did not agree on much of anything. They didn't agree on authoritative texts. They didn't agree on worldview. They did not agree on history. They had a history of violence perpetrated against each other. Some heinous crimes committed against each other. So they believed and they behaved very differently than each other. And Jesus has just made this Samaritan, this Jewish man's rescuer. Now the profundity of the story is in the question it's answering. The question it's answering is, who is my neighbor? See, the initial question that Jesus had been confronted with is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer given, love God, love neighbor. And then the interviewer wanted clarification on who exactly qualifies as his neighbor. Jesus' answer to the question is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or to put it differently, your neighbor is anyone, even those who believe and behave differently than you do. That's your neighbor. 
And Jesus wants you to love them in practical and beneficial ways. Now, you'll also notice in the story that loving people who believe and behave differently than you do, loving them in practical and beneficial ways doesn't automatically mean there's a condoning of worldview or belief. Nowhere's that mentioned in the story. As if this Samaritan, by giving this wounded Jewish man aid, has now adopted or condoned everything this Jewish man believes. That's not the case. Jesus is showing us it's possible to be sacrificially caring for someone who believes and behaves differently than you do, all the while that action of caring for them is never at any point condoning what they believe or how they behave. Walker writing on this says, to see the full dignity of a transgendered person means to abhor or reject any mocking humor that would demean them. It means to stand up and defend them against bullies or abuse. Dignity demands that we speak up in the defense of someone's worth, even when we disagree with their way of life. Fourth and finally, share the truth with your transgender neighbor. The challenge is, how do we love our transgender neighbors while not sending signals that we approve of all the decisions that they made or the way they see the world. This is where the Bible's definition of love runs contrary to society's definition of love. According to society, love means giving people license to pursue whatever they believe will bring them happiness or fulfillment. But that's not how God defines love. First Corinthians is the love chapter. Not talking about love between husband and wife. Talking about love among the saints Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Definition of love. So love means looking someone in the eye and communicating truth to them. We have to care more about truth than what the world thinks of us. We have to care more for the souls of people than the approval of people. Which means we share truth. We do it gently and with grace but we do share truth. In my introduction, I talked about this posture of compassion that the church needs to take as we interact with this community or individuals that you may know personally who are working through this. It's my prayer that our church would be that. See, compassion does not mean approval. But neither does compassion mean silence. Compassion doesn't mean approval. It doesn't mean silence. Someone was to come to you and, and uh, talk about this and express their struggle with it and, and the wrestling match that they're working through. Here's how I hope we would respond. I hope that we would say to them, I am so sorry you're experiencing uh, this deep inner anguish about your gender. I cannot fathom the types of struggles you're experiencing. But I would like to listen, and I would like to be here for you. I'm sorry for any hurt or rejection you've encountered from others. I want you to know that I'm your friend, and I will walk with you through the valleys of your struggles. I also want you to know I may not agree with you. 
I may not agree with you, but I will never look down my nose at you. You're loved. This is compassion. This is grace and truth in balance and symmetry, which characterize Jesus' ministry on this earth. Grace and truth in balance and symmetry. It's my prayer that this would come to characterize us. Let's pray. God, we need your help with this. We need courage because holding to truth will cost us dearly. Your son's commitment to truth got him crucified. We shouldn't be surprised it would be any different for us. We will be tempted to compromise truth in order to be liked. I pray for courage to hold the line. God, we also need your help to be gracious, compassionate. We will be tempted to reduce this issue to a debate to be won or lost, to a war, to a battle. God, I pray that you give us eyes to see behind the talking points to the souls that are represented. They're human beings. These are human beings made in your image and likeness. So I pray for gentleness. I pray for listening ears. I pray for empathy. God, we need your help. We ask these things with humility for the purpose of making much of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.